Paul says in, in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so we read the New Testament in light of the fact that we are living on this side of the cross. It informs us. Uh, what's beautiful about the Old Testament as we study it is it enlightens us. It gives us greater insight into what Christ actually has accomplished for us. Welcome to Through the Bible Together, a production of International Baptist Church Cologne. Our aim is that this weekly content will stimulate conversation and meditation on God's Word. Welcome to another episode of Through the Bible Together. My name is Jonathan Douglas, and with me is David Martin. We are two of the pastors of IBC Cologne. Um, it's good to be back with you. We are we have finally begun our study in earnest, our church-wide whole community study through the book of Leviticus. And I want to spend our podcast today digging into one key thought that I hope will be practical and enriching is that idea that we are being informed in how we worship. So we began that first section um, on Sunday through chapters 1 to 5 covering three op- uh, three of the five offerings there, the burnt, the grain, and the fellowship offering. David, would you like to give us a 30-second overview of each of those? Yeah, so yesterday we covered just the first three sacrifices or offerings. All three of those offerings are what are called voluntary offerings. So they're not being, it's not a debt that they're bringing. It is simply an offering, a tribute. The grain offering is a burnt offering, as in the whole animal is sacrificed and uh, that is about that is a picture of full dedication total dedication to God but that that sacrifice is also an atoning sacrifice meaning because we are sinners and far from God Israel they were sinners something had to be done about the sin in order for them to be reconciled to God or to be in fellowship with God who at this time is dwelling in the tabernacle in the midst of the camp and so this burnt offering was an offering of total dedication to God as a picture of complete surrender to their sovereign Lord, but also it was, a, it was an atoning sacrifice, meaning that was what needed to take place in order for the relationship uh, to, be, to come together, to be, to be one, so that they could enter in and, and, and fellowship with God. Uh, atonement is an important theme there, reconciliation. The second offering... I'm going longer than 30 seconds, sorry. <laughs> the ba- Baptist <laughs> the pastor. The burden of every Baptist preacher, right? Yeah, this is it. Uh, the, the grain sacrifice, or the grain offering, I keep using that word, but the grain offering is usually attached, and it comes with the, the first sacrifice, the first offering given. Uh, the, no blood is shed in the grain offering. It is simply offering to God this fine flour or, or bread, and uh, it is a tribute. It is a sign of tribute. The, the, the grain offering is a, is a declaration that everything that they receive, every good thing they receive is from the Lord, and uh, he is worthy of tribute, but it's also a declaration of their dependence on God. They're not depending on themselves to, to feed them. They're depending on the Lord. And so it is a, it's a praise offering. It's a worship offering that declares their loyalty, their fealty to God, but also their dependence on God for their very sustenance, for their existence. And the final uh, offering we talked about was the the peace offering. And that peace offering was exactly what it was. It was an offering, a, a sacrifice that was made, but not for atonement. But it was a shared meal, essentially, in the tabernacle. 
a portion was given to God on the altar and burned up as a, as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it says. A portion was given to the priests for their for their meal, and then also to the worshiper, and they ate that as in a picture of eating together. It's a celebration of the reconciliation of the right relationship they have with God. And so you have these three voluntary sacrifices, as in it's something that comes from the worshiper desiring to be in a relationship with God, wanting to give honor to God, to, to, to thank Him, and also to celebrate the relationship that they have together with God. Mm. Certainly the, the thing that I was was coming across to me as I was studying and listening also on Sunday was the clarity this is giving us into what God is like, the character of God coming across, right? And how how easy and maybe dis- dismissive or how much I disregard when I myself. And um, so I'm, I'm finding, just to, to personally reflect, as, as we even begin this study, it's a lot more practical to my daily life than I thought it was. Even though we're looking at a lot of details in a different context with a different people in a very different place, uh, it's it's it is going to really enrich my experience and um, my approach. I think, in terms of what I get out of it, but mostly in terms of how how God is honored, hopefully, <laughs> by my 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 um, my actions. Yeah, Amen. I think that's hundred percent true. We have to remember this. Leviticus is happening in a particular time in a particular place with a particular covenant. We're talking about the Mosaic covenant and we don't live under the Mosaic covenant. We don't live in that time and uh, it's a different people. And yet it's the same God. And as it's informing us on who God is and how he, how he has made a way for sinners to draw near to him. That's what I love about Leviticus in the very first verses there. He speaks to Moses and he says, if anyone brings an offering, it is if anyone desires to draw near, God has made a way for us to draw near, to know who he is, to discover the kind of God he is uh, as one who is worthy of our of our loyalty, of our worship, of our our hope and our joy. So it's, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is very practical and informative for the believer to understand and read through, well, specifically Leviticus, but the whole Bible, because first and foremost, we want to be informed on who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though we're not cleaning goat livers and <laughs> this is right and, uh, by God's grace, throwing throwing bowls of blood around. Yeah, so I mean, this is and you you kind of alluded to to, to it there, uh, the the way that God meets. So we know that this is in the context of God's big story. And thankfully, we have the privilege of knowing what further down the road it looks like and what, what God is pointing to, what he's preparing. There was stuff that was certainly for that for that context, and we're going to, I think we'll see if we've got some time, we'll circle back to that. But I want to, I want to jump forward if for, in order for this time to be, I think, the most beneficial for our, for our application as a community and look at this way that God made uh, through the life and death of Jesus Christ and... Um, how so much of what there is in the Old Testament is preparing, is pointing towards the provision that is there in the New. We wonder if you could share a little bit of information or share some insights into your, from your study in how this Old Testament context sheds light or and brings to light that which Christ accomplished for us in his life and death. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. I think the important thing that, uh, to remember is, yeah, all of Scripture 
the culmination of all of Scripture is Jesus Christ. Everything leads to him. Paul says in in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so uh, we read the New Testament in light of the fact that we are living on this side of the cross. It informs us. Uh, What's beautiful about, just before I get into it, what's beautiful about the, the Old Testament as we study it is it enlightens us. It gives us greater insight into what Christ actually has accomplished for us. In the same way, in Leviticus, the people who are sinners and far from God, they need a way. If you want to draw near to God, there something has to be done about the thing that separates you from God. And the Bible says the thing that separates you from God is the sin, not the acts you commit, but you were born in sin. The Bible says that sin passed upon all men, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we're going to have a right relationship with God, sin has to be dealt with. But sinners can't deal with that, uh, that, that sin problem. We as people can't deal with our sin problem on our own. Uh, a sacrifice has to be made. It's the same in Moses' day as it is today. Sacrifice must be made for the forgiveness of sins. Sin has to be dealt with before we can come into a right relationship uh, with God. Uh, I was thinking this morning about Hebrews chapter 9, where uh, the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to Moses. And he says uh, in chapter 9, verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both uh, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And then he writes, And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it was necessary, just as it's necessary then, it's necessary today that a sacrifice be made for sinners if we're going to be in a right relationship with God. And that comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down, was made a man, made flesh, so he could be that perfect sacrifice. He was made a man yet without sin, and he died on the cross. He shed his blood for sinners. He is the atoning sacrifice for you and I, so that when we come by faith, and as I said last night, we kind of picture ourselves even putting our own hands on the crosses in, in the same way in Leviticus 1.4, the sinner puts his hand on the sacrifice to identify this transfer. This is, you know, this, this animal represents uh, this worshiper. The substitutionary sacrifice. We put our hands on the cross. Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. He uh, pays the price. He sheds his blood. And by faith, we receive, receive that. And the reason why the Old Testament is so important is because those sacrifices, they inform us of all the ways that Christ reconciles us back to God. And I think we, we, we tend to look at this, the death of Christ one-dimensionally, as in uh, we may think of it as he died for my sin, Jesus died for my sin. But how often, because we only see it from that way, we actually lose the depth of even the meaning of that, that Christ dies for my sin. And the question is, why? Well, the Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
and specifically without the shedding of innocent blood, as we learned about in Leviticus, what kind of sacrifice was offered? Without blemish, without yeast, without blemish, without blemish, constantly. That there had, the sacrifice had to be without corruption in the same way Jesus, who was without corruption, without sin, he dies our, he dies our death. He pays uh, for our sin by dying on a cross. And so if we only think about, and that's, that's really important, but there's other ways in which Christ also, if we, you know, those sacrifices begin to turn that view of the cross in different ways so we can understand the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. Uh, I use the example, my grandmother had this glass crystal, big glass crystal in her window, as long as I remember, and the sun would come up and it would shine through there. And sometimes we'd pick up that, that glass crystal and we would turn it in the light and it would change. You know, that beauty would just kind of shine through and, and it would change slightly to give it a different perspective. And I think these sacrifices offer us that different perspective of what Christ accomplishes for us. Mm-hmm. So you're picking up on, on, the, on the burnt offering, for example, Christ gave himself holy. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. There's that idea, and you know, I think I'm thinking of Philippians two, somewhere around verse eight, <laughs> um, where he became obedient. Mm. Like he lived his life, and it took him every step of obedience actually took him closer and closer to the cross. So the cross was the expression of a whole life constantly, fully given over, that full devotion. Um. And and I think as you as you progress through on Sunday, going through the the grain offering, the giving the one's best to to a king, to to in the way that you brought as an act of allegiance. So Jesus has done has done it. It really it's shining. It highlights not just what he has done, but what I haven't done. Great point. Great point. I think uh, we have to make sure that we when we look at our own response to the gospel, that we don't look at it as because Jesus has done this for me, I somehow owe him a debt of work to kind of pay off. Or because he's done this for me, I have to do this as kind of a repayment. That's not what it is. We're not saved by works of righteousness uh, because we are unrighteous. Uh, we're not righteous in our own, by our own merit. Um. <clears throat> We have this understanding that or so often it's, e- and it's easy to fall into this, like I somehow have to earn it. But when we look at it for what Christ has accomplished, when we realize what exactly he has accomplished for, for us to be reconciled to God, we, re- we realize really quickly, nothing I can do can ever pay that back. And everything he calls us to, to worship and obedience and allegiance and, you know, and faith, None of those things are earning back or paying back what God has done. They are simply the most reasonable and logical responses to the beautiful and wonderful eternal gift that Christ offers us. And I think that's uh, such an important thing to remember as Christians. Mm-hmm. So because we, we can, and I think it's right, Scripture teaches us also in that, in that passage in 2nd chapter of Philippians, he is our example, but first... He is ours. He is our savior, right? He has done what we haven't done and we could never do. He is that safety net, as it were. As we are called on to follow, every step is at fields. We, we will slip down, but we will not fall. 
because that safety net of what he has done for us is there, as it were, what he has provided. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in, as we think about how this informs our worship, it points ahead to the completion, the, the one who's done, full, fulfilled these, these shadows, has, has done what these uh, sacrifices were pointing to. And, and then it informs our worship, I think, first of all, in, in praise. You think, wow, that, that, that is a, what a person he must have been to have done that. Yeah, amen. It's important to remember that as we read the Old Testament, or even starting with the gospel or read the gospels, as we come to know the Old Testament as well, the Old Testament informs us of what's going on in the context in Jesus' day. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, he was uh, living amongst a Jewish culture, a Jewish nation. He understood the law perfectly. And so when he's referencing things, he's talking about himself or he's, refer- he's speaking with the Pharisees. We, as Christians today, having an understanding of the Old Testament, Old Testament deepens our understanding of what's going on. And, and it makes what Jesus says about himself so much more powerful. Uh, when Jesus uh, had fed those thousands of people, then he gets in a boat in John chapter 5, and he, he goes over to the other side. And then in John chapter 6, they follow him there, and they, hey, give us some more of this food. And there's an exchange, and at the end of it, Jesus says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. So he calls himself the bread of life. He was referencing the manna, but how much richer it is when we talk about as we bring that grain offering to God, Christ himself offers himself up as the grain offering. So it's always important when we read these uh, Old Testament that the sacrifice itself ultimately is a foreshadow of Christ. But there's also the picture of the attitude and posture of the worshiper in these. So you have the sacrifice itself and you have the worshiper offering that. Well, Jesus flips all of that on its ear because he is himself is the offering. And how we engage and how we respond to that is the posture and, and, and action of the worshiper. And so so often we think we don't want to connect Old Testament offerings uh, like the grain, a burnt offering or a grain offering to say how we give our money to the church or how we, we tithe or anything like that. I think that's, you could probably make those, draw those lines, but I think on a much deeper level, we have to see Christ as being the fulfillment of those sacrifice, how those sacrifices are fulfilled ultimately in Christ. But then from the perspective of the worshiper, how the worshiper responds to that which God, the way that God has provided uh, for us. And so Christ is the bread of life. That grain offering is Christ. And even in, the, even in communion, as we gather around the Lord's table, Jesus said, this is my body. He takes the bread, he breaks. This is my body, which is broken for you. You know, he is the bread of life. He is that, that sacrifice. But we as worshipers, we look at the worshiper and say, wow, this, this, because of Christ being the bread of life, that because of his atoning sacrifice, I take, it's not only that I'm thankful and it's an, it's, it's an act of gratitude, but I actually take part in that. He is in me. And it's the spiritual picture that whenever I take communion, 
we don't teach that it's, it's not a Eucharist. We're not taking, you know, it's not physically becoming the blood and body of Christ, but it's a memorial. Just like the grain offering was a memorial offering, it's a symbol. It's in memory of all that God has done, but who I am in Christ. It's an amazing reality. I come to understand this is who I am. I'm a participant in the new life in Christ. And it's, it, it causes our hearts. The response is similar to that of the worshiper in the Old Testament. We have gratitude. We have joy. Uh, we, we, are, we are proclaiming our, our thankfulness for God's provision for our life. And so it deepens that understanding, and it, it turns that diamond one more turn to view Jesus in a different light and to see more of what he's done for us. This is the same in the, the peace offering. In Romans chapter 5, right there in the beginning of the verse, Paul writes, Since we have been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul paints this picture that when we come by faith, we are justified by faith in Christ, meaning all of our sins uh, are forgiven and we are, we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ that justified meaning we are right with God. And he uses the word we, are, we have access. We have been given access to enter into that grace. That is exactly uh, what, the, what I see the peace offering is pointing us to in Leviticus. That once the burnt offering dealt with their sin, that was taken care of so that they could enter into fellowship. And then you have the grain offering being an expression of their gratitude for God and his provision and his, his, uh, his goodness towards them. It's that tribute. And then here you have this peace offering where they are now exercising, having gained entrance into that holy place. They can commune with God. They have access to that grace to have fellowship and to celebrate this, this reconciled relationship. And that's the peace, that shalom that's talked about then. It is fulfilled in Christ and it's for us. We've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. That shalom is given to us, and because of Christ, we have obtained access to a right relationship with God, to fellowship with God. It's it's a beautiful picture. But knowing Leviticus informs that text as we read it, and it deepens our understanding, but it also, I think, it increases our worship. Because as you said, we begin to really see God for who he, He is and what He's accomplished for us. And uh, the only, the only proper response is is praise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, Romans five is, I think I have written on beside my, beside the chapter title in my Bible, relief, no peace, relief. That's what you get. So it's, so really, we're really hoping for ourselves and for our community is that we go back in history and we get down into that, into that historical context and but that it draws our mind to, to ultimately praise and thanks for what Jesus has, has done. And I think it's, it's more secondarily than, okay, now that I sit as a person, as, as, Rome, as, as Paul says later in Romans, with therefore now no condemnation in my future, now held by God, now with peace and ongoing communion, how do I draw, how does, how does the Old Testament, specifically these chapters in Leviticus, fill out my understanding of this God that I now can draw near to? 
because in a secondary way it does it does point us to the character of God and in, in in light of who we are and where we're at. How would you say one could be malnourished, let's say, by only living in the New Testament and having not spent some time in Leviticus? So malnourished is not like starvation where you don't have food, but it's like you don't have all the different categories or all the different, a full diet. <laughs> Old Testament gives us, I think, a, a fuller diet into seeing the character. of How would you, maybe you could answer that positively or negatively. What do we get or what may we miss out if we don't uh, get from Leviticus or what might we miss out in not having spent some time in Leviticus as res- regards the character of God? I think we, we miss out on a great opportunity for... Um knowing God, I think, first and foremost. Not that we don't know him in the New Testament. Of course we do. The fullness of God is revealed in Christ. And yet we do miss out on knowing certain characters of, about God in a, in a deeper way. His love, his grace, his mercy. If, if, if you want to, if there's anything the Old Testament highlights, it's how sinful man is. I mean, it's failure after failure, a turning away from God, turning away from God, turning to idols, turning to uh, human sacrifice, turning away, always being led astray. The story of Israel is really a microcosm of the story of all humanity. We turn to other things. Romans 1 talks clearly about that. The heart of man just seeks after anything but God because the heart of man is, is, is wicked. And what we want more than anything is to worship ourselves. And, uh, and be the center of, of, of that which we adore. And that's the opposite of, of what God desires, which is the whole, that's just the, the evidence of sin. And so the Old Testament informs us about how deep our sin, how deep does it really go? How wicked are we? Because if, if you make little of your sin, you can make little of the cross. If you make little of, of, of how much you need a Savior, then Jesus isn't much of a Savior. But if you really understand the depth of man's sin and how far we have gone from God because of our wickedness, what exactly was the result of Adam's sin? What is the result? Why uh, did God need to make a plan, make a way uh, for, for sinners? Is because we're so sinful, we couldn't do it ourselves. I mean, we're just, you know, so it speaks to the depth of that. And once we understand how wicked we really are, we begin to see, you begin to see grace and mercy everywhere in Scripture. A lot of people think, you know, the Old Testament's all about God being angry, and the New Testament's all about Jesus loving us and protecting us from God's anger. That's a wrong. That's completely wrong. The Old Testament is all about God's love, His grace. The very fact that there is a tabernacle in the Old Testament with sacrifice, totally designed by God, expresses God's grace to sinful man, because he's the one that, that created the way for sinful man to be reconciled to him. And not just Israel, but that being the, the foreshadow of the fulfillment of Christ for, to the whole world. The whole world has a way. The whole world is sinful, fallen far from God, and yet God offers everyone, everywhere, a way back to him. It, it, uh, so if we don't study the Old Testament, if, if, if we only have the new, we're going to get those things. But I think it really gives us, I think, first of all, a depth of a greater, a greater depth or understanding of how, how sinful man is. And I think because it does that, it also increases our understanding of how great and wonderful, how gracious God is. 
And then once you see that, you see it all over the Bible. And I think there's other characters, the other, the other bits of character of God, His holiness, I think, is highlighted over and over in Scripture. And when we really come to know the otherness of God in the Old Testament, it informs how we read the New Testament. You know, you, you can't, you can't uh, walk away from the fact that uh, God is holy and we are not. And so if you read the New Testament without that deeper understanding, I think you, you don't, again, you can learn about the holiness of God in the New Testament, but how much greater, how much deeper is that knowledge? How much more, how, yeah, how, how, how much greater is our awe of God when we have that full picture that he has revealed to us concerning himself? So maybe that, there's probably more ways than that. Those are the first two that come to my mind. <laughs> There's a big. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's. But this is a great up. This is a great topic to spend some time meditating on, right? Yeah. I was just thinking the fact that he demands that they come with full devotion, as well as come needing his atonement. It's it's it brings to. It means it's fitting. It's fitting for us to come offering everything rather than I take God on board my life like I would hire a consultant. Or, or engage a, you know, an insurance provider. Somebody on the side who I give a little bit so that they'll provide a service for me. But no, I, I take God, you know, I, I come to God, A, because he's graciously offered me that way through Jesus, but then I also come offering, come with empty hands, you know, giving him all, because that is fitting. I He... He owned it at the beginning and he demands it now because of who he is. And I think it highlights, uh, it really, as you said, you used the illustration of kind of the processes we go through even to enter our bank account because our money's precious. And it's right that we, it's just, it's the how we have a set up and everything here that we go through these these kind of processes to unlock our bank accounts and whatnot. But the the, the fact that God is, he demands how we approach him because it's fitting and he is, it's, it, it draws our, it should draw our mind upwards to get a bigger view of God and we can never get a big enough view. And so this is just that feeding. But anyway, that was one thing that I certainly uh, took from reading through these couple of chapters. I think that's great. And, I th- and it's true. We, uh, I like the way you use that term. It's fitting. It really works that way. And what that means is the Old Testament informs us that we don't get to somehow interpret the New Testament any other way than that way. We don't get to create another way to God or exceptions to the rule. And just going back to the, the holiness of God like and the sovereignty of God, he really knows best. He knows how to deal with our sin better than we do. And we have to take him at his word. And so we have this opportunity to not only increase our understanding of what he's done for us, but it also informs what exactly we bring to him in response. Um, these offerings that Israel was bringing, I mean, when you compare to what God saved them from, their sin, yes, but even look at the, the material of the physical world. They were set free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, God saved them from uh, attacks by other tribes. He, he fed them food in the wilderness. He gave them water to drink when they were thirsty. He was showing himself to be a God who provides. He is benevolent and kind, and he wanted to show that to them. And so when them bringing these offerings to him, 
as if he needs it. He can draw water from a rock. He can make bread show up on the ground, manna in the morning. He doesn't need their food offerings. And so it's not about, yes, it's costly from the side of the worshiper, but in comparison to what God has done for them and provided for them and who God is, these are, these are mere tiny tokens of, but it speaks so much to the heart of the worshiper. That's actually something that maybe we could uh, dive a little bit into just to kind of, as we come towards the end, we, we're often, we're in the context where we see a lot of other nations throughout history and how they've done sacrifices and approached worship. And you can, you can fall into the trap of saying, well, here's the Bible, and it's just another book written about and They've looked around themselves. They've, they've drawn from other civilizations, and they've looked at how other people worship their gods, and this is just another option. And it, it points God a little bit, it puts God a little bit into that category, the, the Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and how he's some needy, irrational uh, God who needed people to come and, and, and bring a costly sacrifice because he feels threatened somehow. But I mean, and, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak to that. There is another alternative way of viewing that in that the devil, who is the great counterfeiter, as well as the usurper, has actually the, has drawn in the opposite. He has perverted that which was pure and what God had put down is in worship to him. And then all other things that we've seen in other cultures down through history are perversion of what was true and right. The fact that people do come with a costly sacrifice to God. Could you speak a little bit to how we should view that contrast and how really we, we have to be wary to not judge the Bible based on what other cultures and how they approach other gods? I do think it's important that, that we remember that when God reveals himself in Scripture, so much about he reveals, of what he reveals is his character. And so everything he asks us to do cannot be contrary to who he is and his character. And the root of his character is love. And yes, God is holy and he is just and God's wrath, although I don't think God's wrath is so much about his character as much as his response to sin in view of his holiness, uh, that his wrath is poured out against all the wickedness that stands against him. And, and, and he is, he is going to deal rightly with sin and sinners because of who he is. So we, we, we learn about his character. And so all of these sacrifices have to be in view of who he is, how he's revealed himself. God is not an angry God that needs appeasing like these other pagan gods. So they brought the virgin or the sacrifice or the baby in some cases because you need to appease these angry gods so that your, you know, your crops come in or you, know, you don't die of starvation or to you know, fight back disease, whatever the case may be. That's not who God is. God has already provided a way. He's already shown that he's a God who's benevolent and kind and, and provides. He created the world for man to dwell in it and thrive. What God is doing is because he is a merciful God, he is making a way back to him. And so that sacrifice is not about appeasing his anger. I think we got to be careful when we talk about God's wrath, that God was just angry. And so Christ had to die this death so that God wouldn't be angry anymore. And that's not what, what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus is expressing God's mercy. He's expressing God's love by being the atoning sacrifice for us. 
You know, God loved the world so much he sent his only son. Not God was angry, and so he needed a big enough sacrifice, so he sent his son to be that sacrifice, to appease his anger. That's not the same thing as we talk about. And so uh, we have to really understand the difference between those counterfeit sacrifices from pagan because, of course, Satan is the great deceiver, and he's going to copy and paste whatever he wants, and he's going to make it look almost the same. So on one side, we could say, well, it doesn't really matter, or we throw the whole thing out. Well, this is all barbaric and, and old and, and, and outdated. It's like, no, God is never, he, his, his character has never changed. He's the same yesterday, t- today, and forever. And throughout time, he has provided a way for sinful man to be brought back into a relationship with him because he loves us. He wants us to draw near. And if he wants us to, and because he wants us to draw near, he has to deal with that thing that separates us. And so uh, I think the motive behind the sacrifice is important. And we understand those motives because God reveals who he is in scripture and that he is reconciling sinners. And in fact, Paul says that when we were in sin, we were enemies of God. Like we were at enmity with him. And God is making a way to make peace with his enemies by paying the price of our sin, paying the debt against, against us for uh, out of love. And so I, I think there's the real motive is we look at when we talk about sacrificing to other gods, what do we know about those gods? What do they desire? What, what, is, it, what is it they're demanding from people? And uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a, once we begin to understand who God is and why it's necessary, why sacrifice is necessary, and then we begin to see it for what it truly is. It is a means of grace. It is a means of forgiveness and reconciliation to our creator, to a holy God. Does that kind of lead where you were? <laughs> I don't know where I got off there. Yeah, I realized that was a really big, was a really big question. <laughs> but it's, um, it's something I think we have to struggle a little bit with and make sure it was when we do go back, we, we realize we come with filters, right? We come having... We come, we, we come with these influences. And of course, if you've spoken any length of time to your atheist friends or something, somebody's going to bring up this point. But uh, it's just, it's so close, like you say, the devil has counterfeited. And he's, um, when you think the, Amal- uh, um, the Amalekites, so the different cultures around at that time who were sacrificing and coming with to altars. And of course, the crazy thing is that the Israelites continued in many of those old pagan forms of worship, that they are a, a perversion of what was true. And, and just like right from the early days of Cain and Abel bringing a sacrifice to express a God who already wanted to and was providing their means of drawing near is actually, it's, it's really important we get back to that pure idea and that God is worthy of our sacrifice and he, call, and he is always providing, he is always our provider and so we bring, we come as an expression of worship of, of, of his value and his worth. And, and these, are, these are really helpful, I think, especially looking through these Old Testament passages, get a bigger view of God. It really starts there. And of course, even as you see the whole, it never, we, never, we never leave that point either, because as we see the completion of the whole story, in Jesus, it points us back also again to the character of God as gracious provider and merciful. Yeah, and I think when our when our when our view of God begins to increase, and when I say increase, I mean we begin to see him more for who he actually is. It really also informs 
our worship in that what are we bringing to God? What does it mean to God what we bring to him, whether it's our time or our money or our, our talents? And uh, we have to remember that when we say we're making a sacrifice for God, we are not. Because the sacrifice we're making is in view of that which has been done for us. And in that case, we never bring a sacrifice. And, and you can think of all the people through all the ages that, uh, that have served the Lord. When they think about sacrifice, they begin with what Christ has done for them. And it, what they give in response from our perspective as people looks like sacrifice. Oh, they've sacrificed so much for the ministry. Is it a sacrifice? In, in one sense it is. We bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord as in we bring our very best because he's worthy and it's an expression of our heart. You know, as we, we taught a, a few weeks ago that we give to the Lord when we give an offering. We give from our means or oftentimes, but actually like God, like Jesus, we should be giving according to our means because it's an expression of our gratitude. We want to love the way as a, as a token expression of the way Christ loves us. I was thinking about uh, David Livingston. I love, I love the story of David Livingston. We just read uh, the biography of David Livingston to our children just a few weeks back. And I'm reflecting on his ministry. Uh, a lot of people saying, oh, you just sacrificed so much, Dr. Livingston, for the work in Africa. And in response, David Livingston, he said, I never made a sacrifice. We ought not to talk about sacrifice when we remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. I think, wow, someone who's invested so much, and yet when he looks at his own life in view of Christ, he says, that's not a sacrifice, that's worship. Christ gave the ultimate price, uh, paid the ultimate price. There's another story I just read about uh, a Christian who was a, a, a Christian man in China, and he had a heart for his countrymen. In, in that time, there were a lot of, Chinese slaves in Africa and uh, working in the mines and he just had a heart to reach them for the gospel and didn't know what to do so he he sold himself into slavery so that he could uh, share the gospel with these slaves in the mines in Africa and before he died 200 of his countrymen in these mines had given their life to Christ and were set free from from darkness sin and oppression they had the joy of the Lord and you think back and it's like, wow, that's a sacrifice. And from one perspective, it is, but it's still not greater than what Christ has accomplished for us. And you referenced the sermon from a couple of weeks ago on, on the giving. Ultimately, it's about in light of the grace that we received, that he who was rich made himself poor so that we may become rich. Casting it in that sense also draws the, our, our, our focus again back to the fact that we are receivers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Christ is the burnt sacrifice. He is the one who gave himself fully for us. And in response, we give ourselves fully to him. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to make your bodies, I think that's complete, a living sacrifice, total devotion. But remember, our devotion never achieves more. It's The devotion is never greater than Christ's devotion to the Father and his devotion to love us. Our submission to Christ is never greater than the submission that Christ, when he submitted to the Father, and his gift to us is never greater. I mean, excuse me, our gifts to him, this goes south real in a hurry, uh, but our gifts to him, no matter how much uh, 
conviction we bring or how much sacrifice we feel like we're making, it pales, it's nothing. It doesn't even show up as a speck of dust compared to that which Christ freely gives to us and has made for us. And so it, in one side, it does diminish us quite a bit, doesn't it? But because it diminishes us, it, because it increases God. And as a result, although we're diminished, our worship is increased, is it not? I mean, that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, um, I think this week, very much so, um, the focus is on the character of God. But certainly we shift next week to this coming Sunday, and next week we'll uh, look more towards the guilt offering and the sin offering. Uh, it's going to give us an extra in, uh, opportunity to look more clearly at our nature and our problems since Genesis 3. So, yeah, we hope this short time has been a blessing to you, and we look forward to our future podcast next week. Thank you for joining us today. For more info about our local church community and ministries, please visit our website, www.ibc-cologne.com.